On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Bay, and Bay was in a 27-year abusive marriage with a serial cheater. It's a story of lies, victim playing, abuse cycles, codependency, smear campaigns, and self-discovery. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Bay. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you so much for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Bay is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com top of the page there's a button that says guest form click on that button it takes you to our guest form page there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button and please do read all of the instructions and today you're going to hear Bay's story and we have a content warning on this episode as we do discuss sexual coercion, suicidal ideation, suicide threats, and we have very strong language that revolves around a gun use and self-harm. So a big content warning on that. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Bay, the floor is now yours. Just a little background about me. I was raised in a very loving but very strict Catholic family. Um, kind of felt like I lived in a bubble. Uh, didn't have a lot of outside influences. My parents are wonderful people, but my mom is extremely controlling, uh, very judgmental. Um, I think that, you know, affected me later on in life. Um, I became quite the perfectionist when I was younger. And I, I did struggle with low self-esteem when I was younger. I was extremely shy, um, scared of new things, but overall, good, good childhood. Um, I did have early relationships before I met my ex-husband, just your normal high school, college boyfriends, um, nothing out of the ordinary. I did have one relationship uh, between 19 and 20, um, and it, I didn't really know it at the time. I just thought he was a party guy, but he was an alcoholic and he was violent and um, he got violent one time with me and that was the last <laughs> and that was done. Um, but overall, you know, I just had a really normal upbringing, you know, no overt physical abuse or anything like that, but I just wasn't allowed to be who I wanted to be. I was, you know, I had to fill the shoes that my parents, you know, what they wanted me to be. And so I became a rebel and I'm, I'm still a rebel. <laughs> I had lived, you know, such a sheltered life. I just knew I wanted out of my parents' house. I wanted to start life um, on my terms. And I, I just knew that I, I was just ready. I, I didn't want to go to school anymore. I was just done. I wanted to start my life. 
So did you have the traditional thinking of what a family was supposed to be? Yes, I did. Um, you know, my parents are still together to this day, uh, raised Catholic. You don't get divorced. You know, you marry for life and you work your problems out. And, you know, that's that's all I knew. So, yeah, I definitely had that that view. And were there any other belief systems that were instilled at you at such a young age that could have hindered you uh, going forward and maybe admirable traits like bending over backwards to do things for other people if they guilt you enough or like, you know, you just you might have a bleeding heart or there are specific things like that, whether it came from a trauma or not? I absolutely uh, was a bleeding heart and um, I always was the fixer and the helper and there really wasn't any project too big for me in my mind. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that had a lot to do with, with my mom, you know, um, it's, it's the way I was raised. You know, I, I know now, you know, as an adult that I, I am a codependent and I truly believe that my mom is as well. And, um, that's just how we did things. We took care of everything. We fixed everything. So eventually you do meet the, abuser that this story is about and at what age did you meet this person and take us from here i had just turned 21 (laughs) um and of course we met in a bar um i've been a huge music lover my whole life i still am and um he was a musician so that's about all it took um (laughs) i had just broke up with my you know on and off high school boyfriend. Um, So I met him at a bar, his band was playing and I loved their music. And, you know, we just met and started talking. I wasn't attracted to him physically at all. He wasn't my type, but he was really kind and sweet. And we had the same kind of dark sense of humor that I really appreciated. He was very charming. He seemed a little shy, but I was too still at that time. So we, we definitely clicked immediately. Yeah. So we, he asked me out, we went out on a date. That was really about the only date we, we went on. Um, basically we hung at his apartment and on the weekends I went to his gigs and that's how it always was. And the love bombing started early. Uh, it was extraordinary. (laughs) I had never experienced that before in any other relationship and it was I mean it it is like a drug it is absolutely like a drug and I was completely hooked um you know I was the most beautiful woman in the world uh you know everything about me was perfect yeah I mean you know the drill he just put me on a pedestal I feel like and it felt really good you know um I, I was really hooked after the love bombing started, got really serious really quickly. Um, I did start to have a lot of physical attraction to him. And I think a lot of that was just the way that he treated me. Our sexual chemistry was off the charts. We had a lot in common. I now know that a lot of that was him mirroring me um, because in the end, we really didn't have a lot in common. The first red flag that I remember 
finding in his apartment a stash of like articles and magazines and about this like specific porn star and that just floored me and i i don't know why i didn't see that as a red flag i thought well he's a young dude you know i thought he had been single a while um whatever you know he was a collector he collected lots of things whatever so i said something to him and in passing and he's like yeah I'm just fascinated with her story. She has this great backstory and tragic life. And I just kind of dropped it. But in hindsight, that was a, a pattern in our relationship. Second red flag was his drug use. And when I say drugs, mainly pot. And, you know, I got to preface this by saying I am not against smoking weed. Uh, it's just not my thing. And I just thought it was, you know, he's a musician. They all do it. It's the lifestyle. But with him, it was 24-7. And I didn't realize that it was that bad until I was with him when he did not have marijuana. And he was a completely different person. And through the years and what I know now, I think he used weed to keep his mask on. And I think that's how he did it. He was just, he would get a different look about him. His attitude was different. He was very agitated and angry. Um, he wasn't the funny, charming person when he wasn't high. And then the the red flag that was probably the biggest was his family. Early on in our relationship, he told me that he thought his dad was a sex addict. And I had never heard that before. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Um, and. I just was speechless and and he just explained that his dad and he said some things I'm not going to repeat here but um apparently his dad had cheated on his mother with a sex worker there was a place in our town at the time that was like a adult film theater and his dad used to talk openly about going there like on the weekends and my husband always said that you know he's so gross he's creepy that's disgusting I just don't understand um, you know, me, naive, 21, I was like, okay, their family's just different than mine. You know, I just kind of felt sorry for him. Um, his mom, uh, it, she's not a warm person. There was never any warmth or, or loving or she was just very self-centered and self-absorbed. And later in our relationship, we would call her the narcissist. <laughs> but we didn't know what, I mean, I didn't know what that truly meant at the time. It was just because people throw that word around when people are selfish, you know. Another thing I noticed as I got to know him more and, and we got more serious was um, his incredible sense of self-loathing. You know, I struggled with self-esteem in my, you know, early, you know, teens and early adulthood, but it, it was more than that. Um, it was almost a self-hatred. And he would talk about himself horribly. He would get like really down about it sometimes. And I would, you know, try to talk him up and, oh, no, you know, you're a good person. Don't talk about yourself that way and be confident. And he would always say, you're, you're too good for me. And it's like, oh, in hindsight, he was telling me, you know, he was letting me know you're, you're too good for me and you should probably go, but 
you know, I know that now, but um, besides those things that I noticed, I was already hooked. Um, he made me feel so incredible and like I was absolutely the love of his life. I mean, it's it's hard to describe how good that feels when you get compliments every day, all day long. You know, you're perfect and I love you so much and you're my soulmate and we're meant to be together. And I just, you know, I just ignored the signs and I even ignored my family. You know, they were extremely concerned about the relationship. Um, and they didn't even know any of this. <laughs> uh, so what concerned them? Well, for one, I mean, he was a musician. Um, he had tattoos. Um, you know, I come from the 2.5 picket fence Catholic family, you know. Um, but, I mean, they got past that. Uh, later on, my mom actually told me, and this shocked me. She said, my dad was a narcissist, and I can smell him a mile away. And I was like, why did you not say anything to me? You know, this is after I discovered who he was. And she goes, there was no point in telling you anything. You were going to do whatever you wanted to do. And if I tried to talk to you, you would just do it faster. And, you know, and I, I get it. That's that's how I rolled. <laughs> um and this is what, the early 90s? This was, we met in 95. And yeah, yeah. Around a time when no one had tattoos like they have tattoos today. Correct. Yeah. There was still the stigma about the long-haired, you know, tattooed boy, um, <laughs> which that doesn't really exist anymore. But yes, it was still very much a thing. So within the first two years, you do end up getting engaged, you get married, you buy a house with this person, and once that happens, this is where the noticeable abuse starts to happen. But before we get into that, I know you wanted to discuss Lundy Bancroft's book, Why Does He Do That? I read it because I, when I started listening to your podcast and I was blown away because I thought I had read every book and knew everything. <laughs> um, it was a real eye opener, but he is a combination of a few. And the biggest one is the water torturer. And that hit me like a brick, you know, um, because his abuse was so slight and so subtle. And we were together 27 years, you know, it, it's like the frog, the boiling frog that, that some of your other guests have talked about. It's that's the perfect analogy for it. It's exactly how it happens. He's definitely a demand man because he's definitely selfish. Uh, it's all about him. He is a little bit of a victim only because he does have a victim issue. And I had to ask add that he is a dash just a dash of the player because he is a cheater but I mean he doesn't really have any game but so I wouldn't call him a player <laughs> but he is a serial cheater so yeah he's a little bit of the player too so with the, so with the combination of all of these things he's someone who can be very even keel if need be and would 
uh, if you were to kind of raise your voice in any way, it would kind of come back on you as you might be the crazy person uh, yes. d- demanding in in ways. And I guess if you screw up in those ways, you might see rage that's kind of going on uh, there. And then you have the victim. And I'm going to assume that we're going to hear stories where guilt might come into play a yes. lot. And then we have uh, the player where... I'm sure there's a lot of uh, lying or maybe omissions of things uh, going Huge on omissions. as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that was, like I said, later. But, you know, what I was just trying to get at is when when you are in this relationship and and he is absolutely like a covert narc, um, the abuse is so subtle and so slight and over such a long period that you don't know it's abuse. You have no clue until you're desperate and you start researching and then the light bulb goes off and then you've wasted half your life, you know, in my case. Um, His tactics ran the gamut, pathological lying. And when I, like, I don't say pathological liar lightly, like that's, that's a big thing to call someone that. And he is without a doubt a pathological liar. Um, the gaslighting. He's the pro. Blame shifting, playing the victim, the crazy making, the hoovering, the love bombing. And then there was also financial abuse, sexual coercion. It was just all these things, but they were so subtle and over such a long period that I just didn't know what was happening. And I thought he was my soulmate because I was, you know, because of the love bombing. Um, we had been married about a year and I thought things were great. Uh, we had fun together, you know, we traveled a little bit. Um, and then I discovered his first episode of cheating. When we first got married, we had web TV. Do you remember web TV? By Microsoft? I don't know. (laughs) But we didn't have a home computer. So you got onto the internet through your TV. It was, it was very 1999. It was. It was totally. We we partied like it was 1999 for sure. Um, so sorry. Um, okay, so I got home from work one day and I opened up my web TV and there was an email, and it was from his female married coworker, and it said, "Hey, are we going to meet after work tomorrow for?" more kissing or something to that nature. And I, I don't know. I, I saw red. I saw red. I was floored. I never, ever thought he would ever cheat on me because he had made me feel so secure in how much he loved me. It didn't, it never even crossed my mind. I mean, he's a musician at bars every weekend and I never like was jealous or worried And so this really floored me. And it was this big dramatic scene. He came home. I threw him out. He came back. You know, (laughs) I was in the bathtub, you know, having a panic attack. And he's blaring Led Zeppelin because that's how he communicates is through music. (laughs) And I accepted his um, apology. I accepted his version of the story, which was... She pursued me. I don't have any, I don't want anything to do with her. She, you know, she came to my gig. She got in my car. We smoked a joint and she kissed me. 
and that was it, and you need to get over it. And so I did, sort of. Later on, I don't know how many weeks or months this was, I was chatting with his best friend at the time, who is his old roommate. And I brought that situation up with the work girl. And I was like, you know, I just, I just can't stop thinking about it. I don't, you know, and he got real uncomfortable and he said, you know, I'm just going to do this. And he told me that my husband had come to him and told him about this girl. And he had said that, you know, they worked together. um, They had a lot in common. They got high on their breaks or at lunch or whatever. And that he thought she might be his soulmate. And I was, you know, crushed. And then before I could even get my thoughts together, his friend told me that he was my husband. We were actually dating at the time was having an affair with this girl that was his friend for years and she was engaged to be married and they had this affair right before he met me and he was still sleeping with her when him and I first started dating and I I didn't know this I knew this girl uh she was a constant in our relationship she was at the gig she you know uh We'd go to their house for parties. We went on trips with them. We went to their wedding. They came to our wedding. I didn't know um, any of that. I didn't know the extent of it. I thought that maybe they had a fling or something. But so anyway, I had these two bombshells in the same day. And of course, he was, you know, that that's not what happened. And my friend's just trying to get with you and So the girl that he was having the affair with, who was engaged, um, you know, I just, I told him, I said, you know, she makes me uncomfortable, even though he told me, yeah, I slept with her. Yeah, we had an affair, but we were just dating. I barely knew you. So what's the problem? It's not like it was cheating. And I didn't come back at him, you know, I mean, I did, but eventually I, I stopped because I didn't remember it that way. I mean, he was telling me he loved me very early in our relationship. And so I don't know the timeline, you know, and I was already married. It was kind of too late for this. Right. So I finally told him I wanted nothing to do with him anymore. And she made me uncomfortable. And I said, just keep this between me and you. And we just won't hang out with them anymore. Well, what does he do? He goes and he tells her after I begged him not to talk to her. And she showed up at one of his gigs and cornered me in a bathroom and got in my face and started telling me all this shit and then turned around and said she wanted to be my friend. And she was just evil. And I I walked out and I, I never spoke or saw them again. So anyway, lots of bombshells, lots of things going on. Um, we ended up moving to a different house. Um, I started to have doubts about my marriage. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my husband. I think he sensed it. And this is very embarrassing to admit, but I know there's other people out there that this has happened to, but he tracked my periods and he used that against me, um, to coerce me for sex. Or if I didn't want to, you know, he would make some comment. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go into details, but 
he used that against me. And this specific night, we were in this new house, and I don't remember if we fought or not, but we had sex that night. And uh, I don't know how else to say this, but, you know, I, I never wanted kids. I was very clear. And he never wanted kids. And we were very in agreement with that. And so we were very hypervigilant to prevent pregnancy, <laughs> but I couldn't take birth control. So that night we had sex and he wasn't careful and it was on purpose and I was shocked and I freaked out and he just acted like it was no big deal. And he's like, why are you so upset? And I'm like, we don't want kids. You know, this is what happens. You know, when you do this, I'm going to have a baby, you know, like, hello. And he's like, you just need to lighten up. You're my wife. Shit happens. It'll be fine. The thing is, is that he had never done that before. And he never did that again, as long as we were together. It was just that one time. It was specific to that time. And I know in my gut that he knew what he was doing. And sure enough, two weeks later, I'm pregnant. I did not want to be pregnant. Again, I didn't want children, um, but I was trapped. I am Catholic. I was raised Catholic. You know, abortion is not an option. I was married. You don't get abortions when you're married. And he knew that. And he knew that I was not going to leave him because we were going to have a baby. Um, okay. Sorry, I need, I need a minute. <laughs> Okay, so when we found out I was pregnant, we moved again. <laughs> when we moved into the house, I had to paint the entire house top to bottom when I was six months pregnant. Um, I, d I was doing trim on the floor. I was on a ladder. I was carrying things. I mean, like, even the cable guy, when he came to put in our cable, he's like, um, you really shouldn't be on that ladder. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my husband never helped with anything and I had to get it done. And so after we got settled in the house, I was about seven months pregnant and I got very sick and had to go on bed rest. And I had a lot of complications. We had our son. It was an extremely traumatic birth. Um, sorry. <laughs> Um, it was an extremely traumatic birth, and I almost died. Um, I apologize. I have a lot of PTSD for that. So, um, But we had this amazing little baby, and I was excited. My family was excited. Um, I was still very sick after I had my son, and I had a long recovery. But we took my son home. We started, you know, living life as a family. And I have to say this, I don't say a lot of nice things about my ex, but he blew me away by how good of a dad he was to our son when he was little. He was an amazing father when my son was a baby. I mean, he was in the trenches with me. And I was really, really proud of him because he had such a, a dad that he you know, had so many issues with and his dad never told him he loved him. And he said, I'm, I'm always going to make sure my son knows that I love him. And so I was just like, I mean, I, I feel like I fell in love with him, watching him become a dad 
it was just, it was an amazing time. And I was, I was just really happy. I had my little family. Um, I started to heal and, and feel better. And it was, it was an amazing time. Um, you know, it's hard to look back on it now considering where we are, but that was probably the first few years of my son's life, as hard as they were, were probably the happiest I had been. But as my son got older, I, I noticed more red flags and issues cropping up. Um, there was a sense of jealousy with my son. Um, my husband started to complain that I didn't pay enough attention to him. Uh, I wouldn't have sex with him enough. Uh, he didn't feel loved by me. He started with the sex issues, which was always an issue in our relationship because no matter what I did, it was never enough. I started noticing that he would pout and have like these little temper tantrums when things didn't go his way, especially when we were out somewhere. One time in particular, I remember um, it was a pretty day and I wanted to get out of the house and I said, I'm going to take, you know, our son down to the river with the dog and just take a walk. But my dog, you know, weighed 130 pounds and I was like, can you come with us? You know, we'll have a lot of fun. I'm a nature girl. I'm a tree hugger. He hates being outside. He hates anything to do with nature. He doesn't hike. You know, he doesn't fish. <laughs> None of the things I like to do. But he went and he wasn't happy, but he went and something happened with the dog's leash and he, it got tangled up in my husband's leg and he tripped and fell. And like the dog took off and the kid was screaming and, you know, I, I got the dog and the kid and the way he reacted was so over the top. Like I thought he had broken his leg. And so I ran over to him and I was like, oh my God, are you okay? And he just started screaming and like, like a child, like a temper tantrum. And I was so embarrassed, Brandon. I don't even remember like what he was screaming about. And you know, there's people all around us. Like I was mortified. And I remember thinking, okay, he's not hurt. You know, maybe it was just his pride because people saw him fall. I don't know, but it was completely over the top for what actually happened. And he was so like nasty about it. I just started crying and I said, we're just going to go home. And on the way home, that was the first time I ever told him, you need help. To be clear, I I always knew that something was off about him. Um, never could put my finger on it. You know, I wasn't able to put my finger on it until right before I got divorced. But that was the first time that I was brave enough to say, you need help. Because I knew that that, that just wasn't right. It wasn't normal. We tried counseling for a while. It didn't go well. We stopped. Um, I think at this point, he decided he was depressed. I think he may have gotten on medicine at that time. I don't remember. And so then right around the time my son was in pre-K, so he was about four, is when my life completely changed. Um, he came home one day. I, I had been homesick from work, and he came home, and he sat down, and he said, I don't want to be married anymore, and I'm leaving. And he had left once before. After a fight, he went to his sister's and it was just for a night. And, you know, sometimes you have to do that, you know, to clear the air. But this was different. And I thought, okay, well, maybe he'll come back tomorrow. Or, you know, he wouldn't tell me anything. He just got up and left and he didn't come back. And he did not come back for 
like three, four months. Um, I was just devastated because I didn't know why. And, you know, as a codependent like me, you, you want to fix everything. You want to make everything okay. You know, what did I do wrong? What can I do to fix this? You know, why did you leave me? I don't understand. And he, he would never tell me. I asked him if he was cheating and he said, oh my God, you're crazy. I would never do that. Um, he just said, I don't want to be married anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I just tried to survive at that point. Um, my son was crying every night for him because his dad would always lay down with him to get him to sleep. Uh, my son started regressing. He started having accidents and he'd been potty trained for a while. You know, his pre-K teachers were concerned. And every time I would say something to my husband, like, I, you've got to do something. We have to address this. Like our kid is suffering. And he told me that um, I was making all of it up. Our son was too young to even know what was going on and that I just needed to accept this. I didn't have a choice. So I deteriorated very quickly. Um, I lost about 40 pounds in three months. I didn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was taking Ativan to be able to go to work and still nothing from him. I would call him and call him and he just shut his phone off. He would send me these really weird cryptic emails from his work and say things like, oh, you know, I love you guys so much, but this is just the way it's meant to be. And, you know, our son will be okay. He'll get used to us living apart. But yet he would never say divorce. He never said the word divorce ever during all of this. So I, I, I'm like, I, don't, I just, I just want to know what the hell is going on. You know, like I deserve to know. So this went on for months. Um, I lost my mind a little bit with the trauma bond. I would drive to his sister's house when he told me he was there, try to talk to him. Of course, he wasn't there. I went to one of his gigs knowing he'd be loading equipment, tried to talk to him. And that was a nightmare. Um, I was isolating. I was living with my parents half the time because I couldn't function. And then towards the end of this, my friends decided to have a little get together for me because I had been so isolated and they were worried. And so they were just going to have some food and games and whatever. And I was getting ready to go. And I went in my son's room and I laid on his bed and I cried because that's what I did every night that he wasn't there. And when I sat up, my ex-husband, my husband was in the doorway. And he's like, what are you doing? Are you okay? And I just remember, like, I mean, I was skeletal. I was broken. I was a shell of who I had been. I looked awful. And I just remember sitting up and I said, no, I'm not okay. I feel nothing but utter despair. And I don't know what to do. And you won't talk to me. And he came over and sat next to me on my son's bed. And he started rubbing my back. And it was like immediate, like, I felt like I could breathe. Um, he told me that he couldn't do this anymore, that he wanted to come back to his family and that he was coming back tonight. And I immediately, like, it was like that hit of, of drug that I got, you know, like I immediately felt fine. <laughs> and it was just such a relief. And I just, I just sat there and I cried and I was so happy and we were hugging and crying and 
um, and then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm late for this party and like, they're having it for me. Like I have to go. And, and I remember saying to him, I'm so sorry. I have to leave you. You know, it makes me laugh now kind of, um, you know, he'd left me for four months with no explanation, but I'm apologizing to him for leaving for an hour for a party, you know? So he said, no, go ahead and go. He's like, I'm going to go pick up our son and take him out to dinner. And so I went to the party. It was fine. I come home. We just started living life like we had been, like nothing had happened. And he didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it, but I would get the gaslighting. You need to let this shit go. You're making yourself crazy. You know, um, nothing happened. I wasn't cheating. I just maybe had a midlife crisis and you just need to let it go. Did that make rational sense to you? Looking back, hell no. Um, in the moment, I was just relieved. I I was so sick in my own issues and the trauma bond that it, it was just relief to me. And because because I didn't know what happened. And, and you know, if I knew what I knew then, no, but I just figured, okay, you know, I know something's wrong with this man. I'm trying everything I can to help him and make him happy. Maybe he just snapped and he just had to get away. So, yeah, I mean, you know, divorce wasn't an option to me and I didn't want to be a single mom. I didn't, I couldn't make it financially on my own. You know, that was not in the cards. Um, so we went to therapy again. Um, we kind of had a, what the therapist called a honeymoon phase where everything was wonderful and rosy and we had sex all the time and, and he loved bomb me and we were happy and it didn't last very long. Um, I don't know how long it was after that, if it was weeks or if it was months, but I was at work and I was getting ready to go to lunch and everybody was gone. And I got this phone call on my office phone and it, it said it was from a pay phone, which you know, they still existed back then, I guess. Um, and I answer and she was like, you don't know me, but I know all about you. And I know your husband's come back to you, but you need to know that he's been cheating on you for over a year. And he has told this woman that he loves her and you need to know for the sake of you and your son. And I don't remember a lot after that. Apparently I do remember, I, I guess I got in my car. I ended up in like an abandoned Walmart parking lot <laughs> and I called him and I said, you better get your ass home. And the next thing I know, he's walking in the door. I told him about the phone call. He finally admitted it was his high school, one of his high school girlfriends, but nothing happened. They just kissed. <laughs> Um, so we had this big dramatic thing. He didn't love her. It was over. I needed to chill out. I needed to get over this. He was sorry. It will never happen again. Um, but I wasn't taking no for an answer and I made him call her and I got on the phone and she knew I was going to call because he had warned her when I called him and yes, he was having sex with her for a long period of time. And yes, he did tell her he loved her according to her. And all I remember after that is throwing the phone at him and I went into a tailspin and I was in a tailspin for months and months after that. 
you know, I was obsessed with knowing the details and like what happened and why, and he was not forthcoming. So we had these constant discussions and fights about what I felt like I needed to know in order to get over this and to heal. You know, our therapist was, you know, trying to get us through this. And this whole time, though, this whole time, he is telling me over and over and over again, we can't split up. I can't live without you. You are everything to me. I'm fucked up. My, you know, my family's fucked up and I'm so sorry and I'm a terrible piece of shit and I'll never do this again. And I learned my lesson and I'll never hurt you again. Just give me another chance. You know, I'll die without you. I mean, it was just all about it. And I told him I'd give him a year and I would try to get over it. I knew people that had stayed married after affairs and they were okay. Um, so that's what I did. I was real hung up on who called me though. I don't know why that bothered me, but it did. And I called the affair partner, his high school girlfriend and a, a different time. And, and we had a really nice civil conversation, but it wasn't her. I asked her point blank and she was very upfront with me and very kind. And, you know, I couldn't stand this woman. She'd slept with my husband, but she was suffering as well. You know, she was dealing with a lot of the same things he did to her. So anyway, I, I, I felt like I could trust her. Um, the only other person that it would have been was my sister-in-law, my husband's sister. I questioned her and in an email chain, because we had emailed back and forth for months at this point. And I said, I don't mean to bring up the past and I'm over this, but except this one thing. And were you the one that called? And she never answered me. So I just kind of let it go. And then later on, I get an email from her and it was apparently my husband had asked her about the email. And so she reached out to me and she started saying, how dare you say this about me? How dare you say I didn't answer you? And, and then she just started basically crucifying me in this email, like list of everything I had done. Um, I alienated him from his family. Um, I kept him from family events. She listed all of these things that I said about her and her family and who do I think I am and, you know, I'm not perfect and, you know, I'm a mess too and, and how dare I say these things. And I just remember knowing I never said or did any of those things. And after thinking about it, I emailed her back and I was like, listen, it's your brother. He refused to go to so-and-so's wedding. He refused to go to the family reunion. You know, he said those things about your friend. You know, he said those things. I didn't say those things. And that's when I realized that that was my first smear campaign. Um, and it worked because she didn't believe me. So our relationship was strained after that. But eventually we came around, but it, it was tough. It sounds like he plays them in a triangulation sense of you are the enemy to them or you're the bad person to them. And then I'm going to assume that he plays uh, them off of you, that they're the worst people over there, but he's the one constantly doing the bad things on both sides. You nailed it. Absolutely. And that's what I was getting at. Um, he talked so horribly about his family 
And I mean, I understood why he said some of the things they did because, you know, they weren't, they didn't, they just didn't have a great relationship. But I mean, he, he, him and his sister are extremely close, like extremely close. They always have been, but yet he would talk shit about her incessantly. He would call her every name in the book, say she was batshit crazy. She should have been committed, you know, horrible things. And and you're right. He was doing the same thing. Like he would act one way around them when I was there. But when I wasn't there, he was, you know, talking smack about me. And then when he would come home to me, he would talk smack to me about them. And it it was, that's exactly what he was doing. It's kind of disturbing, really. Shoot, this hindsight. It's tough sometimes. <laughs> um, so anyway, I continued to try to heal. Uh, he continued to love bomb me. Anytime we would get to a point where we, where I was feeling insecure or struggling with what had happened, he would diminish it. With him, it was the same cycle. Anytime I would bring anything up or he felt threatened or I wasn't, or if I was going to be upset at him about something, it would start out, you know, like, first it would be a lie. And then it was um, the blame shifting, the gaslighting. Oh, gosh. It's just, it was so textbook. It just makes me sick now to think about it. Um, Everything always ended up being somehow my fault and somehow he was the victim. And at the end of these, like, talks or fights or whatever, it, it you know, it always started with my concern, but it ended up him, like, crying, telling me what a piece of shit he was, that he hates himself. But if if you would just love me more, you know, I would be better, and then I would end up apologizing to him and caretaking him. And it was sick. The whole thing was sick. I had to walk on eggshells around him constantly. Um, He was very tense. He was angry a lot. Um, I caught him in constant lies. I found old girlfriend's email addresses. I saw a Facebook message to his best friend's girlfriend at the time that was kind of gross. And of course, every time I would, you know, confront him, uh, no, that's not what happened. Uh, You are being crazy. You know, you're letting the past come back and and fuck with your head and, you know, you need help and you just need to get over this. And my, I I always covered for his behavior because that's what I did. Um, I made excuses for him. Um, As my son got older, he would come to me a lot and ask, why is daddy so mad all the time? Does, does dad not like me? Why, why is he so, you know, angry all the time? And I would just, you know, tell him, oh, well, that's just how he is. He's stressed. It's okay. Later on, when my son was much older and he was actually driving, um, at this point, I was doing photography part-time as a side gig. And I was at the studio and my son called me and he said, I'm coming to the studio. And he was crying. So I got my clients out. My son showed up and him and my husband had had some sort of altercation. I don't even know what it was about. And my son basically was like, I don't want my parents to get divorced, mom, but I can't live with him anymore. And, you know, that's like a knife in the heart. He was 16. I was already contemplating 
my escape at this point. And to hear that from your kid, it was tough. My, my son ended up not coming home that night. And later on, when I tried to get them to hash it out, I watched my husband lie and gaslight my son, which I had never seen before. Uh, when my son would tell him what happened and why he was upset, he said, that, that never happened. That's not how it happened. Why are you saying that? I mean, just, and honestly, I don't know even what they were having an issue about at that time because there were so many instances. Um, but at that point, I had told my husband, you need to get help for this anger because it's affecting all of us. You're like this damn black cloud that is over our house and it's wearing on all of us, you know, especially our kid. So that night he told my kid he had anger issues and he was going to get help. And he never did a damn thing about it. And that was that. Um, he started having more illnesses, which was another pattern of his. Anytime anything would get stressful or if, say, for instance, if I went out with girlfriends or if I had to take like a photography trip or something, um, he would have stomach pains or he'd throw up or like one time he had a knot on his head and he obsessed about it and, oh my gosh, I may have cancer. And that started happening more and more often. You know, if I went out or was out of town, he would text me and tell me, you know, how bad his day was and he didn't feel good and he missed me and when am I coming home? And it's like, dude, you know, <laughs> he, and I know this is a, this is a huge thing when dealing with these people. Um, he would talk about um, self-harm and when we would have some of our epic fights, if he, if I didn't end up caretaking him and apologizing when he was playing victim, he would start in by saying, well, I may as well just drive off the bridge or just put a fucking bullet in my head. Nobody's going to care, that sort of thing. And of course, at the time, I was like, oh my God, how can you say that? You know, your uncle did this. You know, you know how terrible this is. Don't say that. Now I know he wasn't going to hurt himself. It was a control tactic, you know. Um, he started putting me down very, very, like in very subtle ways. Uh, he would point out like if I had a pimple or if my hair looked weird or I could, I, I, I could read his facial expressions and his body language so well you know I would cook for him on the weekends and you know I'm a damn good cook like there's no doubt about it like I can throw down in the kitchen and I would cook this big elaborate meal and then he'd sit down and he'd just kind of like pick at it with his fork and like look at it and his whole demeanor was just it made me feel this big I mean it just made me feel really small and of course, when I'd say, is something wrong with the food? Oh, nothing. And then he'd scrape it into the trash. I mean, I knew it was, you know, it was just, um, when I would tell him the things that he would say to me hurt my feelings or made me feel self-conscious, um, it was, you know, loosen up. I'm only joking. You're so uptight. Just get over yourself, you know, that kind of thing. He never did anything around the house to help me. And it was the whole, like, weaponized incompetence thing and I hate that phrase but that's exactly what it was and he would play dumb he would say my dad never taught me how to do that I don't know how to do that 
or even something simple like asking him to take out some trash in the backyard that had been laying there. He would tell me over and over and over again, he'd do it. But then, you know, like a year later, I'd go out there and it's still there. I was exhausted at this point. I took care of everything in our home. I did everything. I worked two jobs. And all he did was complain that we didn't have enough money. He didn't get enough sex. Um, I didn't love him enough. And I, I would always tell him, it doesn't matter what I do. It's never enough for you. So it, we just, it was the sixth cycle and a year turned into five years, turned into 10 years. And it just, it just continued. And I wanted out, but I didn't make enough money and I didn't want to be a single parent because I couldn't stand the fact of my son having to live with him 50, 50, because I knew he would be exposed to stuff. I did not want my son exposed to. I, I just, I kind of hung on, you know, I tried to make the best of it. The vicious cycle, the devaluation, lying, blame shifting, gaslighting, the victim. Again, me caretaking, apologizing. And then it was a love bombing, the future faking. Um, and then it just went back to devaluation again. Um, my friends saw a, a huge change in me and only a couple of my friends knew that he had cheated. My family did not. Um, I was too ashamed. I was embarrassed. I felt tremendous guilt that I had brought a child into this situation. Even though I technically didn't have control over that, um, it really bothered me. And um, I felt more alone during that time than I ever had in my life. And during all of this, um, I helped take care of his grandmother, was, you know, in the end stages of her life. and. I would go over to her house or her, you know, place like two or three times a week. And then it was, you know, cleaning up her messes and, you know, showering her. And, um, you know, I, I, I just, I just kept doing everything I could do. It was almost like I was just trying to prove myself, you know? So within all of these years, you did go to therapy here and there, or at least tried. Did you ever have the word abuse enter your mind? That's a great question. That's a two-part answer. The first part was when we had seen a therapist years ago, um, we had seen a few. and. I saw her privately or, you know, separately from him as well. And she did mention that she thought he may have narcissistic traits. And I just laughed at her because I didn't understand. I just thought that meant, you know, well, he's, he doesn't have those traits. He's not, you know, flashy and obnoxious and so, you know, whatever. But later on, um, when I went back into therapy, um, towards the end, my therapist made me watch a video and I started crying so hard. I had to tell her to turn it off. And it was, have you been gaslit? And that's when she looked at me and she said, you have been in a, an abusive relationship and you need to get out. So that wasn't until the end of our marriage. So at this point I started thinking I had to do something. I was, you know, 
depressed. I, I didn't sleep. I felt alone. Um, I was miserable. I started researching. I read a book, Leave a Cheater, Gain a Life, something like that. Um, I loved this book because she was blunt. She was coarse. <laughs> she talked just like me. Um, it changed my life. I realized uh, what I was dealing with. She mentioned narcissism in the book. And so I started researching that. And then I came across a, a book called The Passive Aggressive Covert Narcissist. And I think I've read it three times now. Um, that was when the light bulb went off. And that was the day, like after I read that book for the first time, I, I made a decision on my own and I basically just stopped being his supply. I just stopped. I shut down um, physically, my body shut down mentally, no emotion to him. He still would try to coerce me to have sex and I would try and I started having physical reactions to where I would feel sick. I was disassociating during the time and I realized then that this can't happen anymore. Like my body's done. My body knew and I wasn't listening to my body for a long time. And I completely stopped all, all physical contact with him. I couldn't do it anymore. During this time, he got another job. But after about a year or so, it was a very stressful job. Uh, he quit. And during this time, it was about three or four months. He didn't do anything but sleep, get high, watch TV on the couch. He did nothing to help me around the house. We had no money. Uh, I started taking more side jobs. My son had to get on medical assistance for his medication. And all he could tell me was, you don't support me enough. I'm working two jobs. I'm trying to pay bills. I had to open up credit cards in order for us to eat and to pay for my son's graduation. And I was just done. At this point, I actually went and, and saw an attorney. I still financially wasn't sure I could do it, but I know I, 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 I had to. And so I, I guess it was about a week after I went to the attorney, I was getting ready to tr sit down with him and tell him I wanted a divorce and the whole country shut down because of the pandemic. <laughs> I freaked out. I didn't know if I would lose my job. I, I knew I could not do this during a pandemic. I, I just couldn't, uh, I didn't have it in me. You know, I was, I was just tired and I just knew I, I couldn't do it. So yeah, I was in therapy. We're in the pandemic. Uh, we're going through hell because we're stuck in the house. Um, I got another gut feeling. I only had access to his Google searches at this point. Um, and I did find what I was looking for. And it was a coworker at his previous job that he had quit. Uh, when I confronted him, he said nothing happened. I was crazy. Um, I was a bitch for going through his stuff. Uh, why can't you get over what happened in the past? I told you I'd never do this to you again. After about an hour of fighting about this, he finally did admit to me that he had a crush on her. He was attracted to her. And the, yeah, he did Google, Google her. So what? That doesn't mean anything. You're fucking crazy. I told him I believed him because at this point, you know, I didn't care anymore. I knew I was getting out. I just, I just didn't care. Um, so towards the end, 
he ended up getting major dental work. I'm talking like thousands and thousands of dollars. And he wasn't going to tell me. And he came home one day and said something. And I noticed half his teeth were gone. And I was like, what the hell is going on right now? What are you doing? And uh, he immediately got defensive. Um, it's none of your business. I need this done. I'm going to do it. Uh, you need to just not worry about it. Get off my ass. And I said, you know what? You knew, you do need to have this done. But because of you not working, we're $20,000 in debt. I don't have a retirement. You don't have a retirement. We have no savings. How are we going to pay for this? Like, this was the last straw. Like, I have no more resources for any of this. He told me to shut the fuck up and leave him alone, and he would take care of it. He told me that the dental work had been paid for, um, but then the bill collector started calling me, and he hadn't paid. And then it was a whole other cycle of lying, gaslighting. Uh, that's not true. They're lying. The insurance messed up. Um, you just need to stop worrying about this. And, you know, you're crazy. And it just went on and on. So after this event and 27 years of abuse, you filed for divorce. So walk us through this. I filed for divorce in April of last year. He did not fight me on it. I thought he would because he, he always told me that he would do anything to keep our marriage together. So our divorce was final in mid-June, and he continued to live in the home um, until about a month before it was final. Um, we agreed to be civil and to be friends and to try really hard to make it okay for our son because he was struggling a little bit. When he did finally move out, the only reason he was able to move out is because my parents gave him thousands of dollars as a, you know, like an advance for our divorce settlement. They gave him a truck to move. They gave him household items. Um, he was set. He was completely set in his new place, paid up until the end of July. He would text me every day. He would tell me how much he loved me. He missed me. He missed the cat. He missed our son. He'd send me pictures of us together. It was kind of like love bombing by text. I guess. Um, and he was already with somebody else, you know? I mean, I think he just wanted to be friends because he wanted me as that backup supply if it didn't work out with the new one. Um, I did find out about the new supply pretty quickly because they had been together since before we got divorced. Um, according to him, they got together the weekend that he actually moved out. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't care. But then things got really, really dark. Um, when my son found out about the girlfriend, and, and it's, this, it's this big, again, it's a big dramatic thing. It's a very long, disgusting story. It's a lot of lies. It's a lot of gaslighting. He lied to my son. He called my son a liar. I was still in the home and was trying to repair the home because it was in major disrepair. Um, and I remember one night um, I was having a new roof put on. We had a really bad storm and I had water coming in my house all over the place. And then I hear this crash and my ceiling in my attached garage had collapsed. 
because of the roof, the leaky roof. This was all happening happening at the same time that my son was devastated over what his dad had done. His dad had promised to take him on a trip across the country to where my mother-in-law lived, you know, my son's grandma. And my son found out um, that he ended up taking the new supply on that trip. Um, I think it was a week after our divorce was final, maybe two weeks. And then I found out later he had actually taken money out of our joint account that he had promised to help pay for the bills until the divorce was final. This summer was the darkest, absolute darkest time of my life. Uh, you know, there was a lot of nights, like when the ceiling collapsed, my son and I were on the kitchen floor, you know, holding each other, crying. Uh, he was so filled with rage at his dad that he actually came to me one night crying. I was in bed and he said, mom, I went to dad's house tonight. And I took a knife with me and I was going to slash all his tires. And then I was going to knock on his door and beat the living shit out of him, but he wasn't home. And my son is not like that. I mean, not my son changed. I mean, I have witnessed this dramatic change in his personality, his behaviors. He's depressed. Um, he's isolating quite a bit. You know, and every time I'd try to talk to the ex, he would tell me I was nuts. I was making it up. I was using it to turn his son against him. Um, he was fine. So we went through this whole back and forth over the summer. Um, him lying about things, my son finding out, my son being devastated. Unfortunately, the trauma bond came back to haunt me uh, terribly. I mean, it was awful. I felt like and I've never done drugs. I felt like I was coming off a of heroin and they say that's what it feels like. And that's what it felt like. I could barely get out of bed. I couldn't function. I just wanted him to make things right with my kid. I wanted closure from him. Like it was just such a mess. We promised we were going to be friends. We promised we were going to be a family for my son. We promised it would be amicable. And it was a complete disaster. And I'm ashamed to say this, but I started raging at him. T first it was text, then he blocked me on text, then it was email. I said some very horrible things to him, but Brandon, everything I said to him was true. And it was like, and I, and I know now that it's reactive abuse. And, you know, every time I try to talk to him and he would gaslight me and tell me I was crazy. And I'm just jealous of his new girlfriend. And I just snapped and it, it got really bad. And my therapist um, just calmly gave me information about codependency. <laughs> and um, that's when I knew I, you know, I needed, I needed to work on myself as well. Um, my son to this day has never been told of any of his father's like, you know, past indiscretions or girlfriends or anything. And I'll never say that to him. I've always covered for him. Um, even when he was in my house screaming and crying, telling me he hated his dad and he didn't have a dad anymore. And I always talked up to him, but I have nightmares. 
I have flashbacks. Um, I'm just recently starting to grow back some hair that fell out. <laughs> I went through a a time where I felt really guilty for the new the new girlfriend. I, I do know her. I know enough about her. I don't know her well, but I've been around her and um I do know that she is a prime target. She's vulnerable and I won't go into that, but I felt sorry for her and I was losing sleep over it. And in my codependent self, you know, I had to try to fix it and make it better. And I tried to warn her. Everyone told me not to, but I did. And I don't know if she ever read it or not. It doesn't matter because he'd already told everyone that I was a crazy, jealous alcoholic. That was a good one that I needed help, but I'd lost my mind. And so, yeah, that, that was a, that was a mistake. Don't ever, ever, ever contact a new supply. Don't ever do it. <laughs> but you know, I'm a rebel, so I got to do what I got to do. And you're not going to tell me different, right? <laughs> um, slowly, but surely I came out of it. It was again, the most painful time. I honestly did not think I was ever going to be able to come out of it. I thought my life was over. Um, when I found out about the current smear campaign, um, that's when it really hit me because he accused me of taking money from him. He accused me of cheating with my photography assistant, but most of all, he told everyone that I turned his son against him. These people, they don't change. He's not going to change. He's not going to get help. He's not going to look at himself or admit any part of any of this. Um, he just flips his love, which really wasn't real love. He flips it off when he's done and then just finds that new person and starts it all over again. And he did it all throughout our marriage. You know, there were other women that I didn't mention. Um, all of them were soulmates. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, as much as I can't stand the side of him, I do feel sorry for him. He'll never be happy. What I have learned through the research and your podcast and therapy and trying to recover from codependency, gosh, I've learned so much. And I just feel, I feel like I have another shot at life. I mean, I'm 49 years old. Like I'm not getting any younger, right? Like I wasted half my life on this man. And I have immense grief still. I still struggle with immense grief because literally I wasted 27 years, but it is what it is. And this is my time to learn from it. Um, it's my time to heal myself so that this doesn't happen again. I think what really helped me the most was journaling. I, my therapist suggested it and I started journaling. The codependency recovery was huge, huge, because I did not understand what that really meant. And I didn't understand the dynamic between a codependent and this toxic person or narcissist. And they go hand in hand, you know, it's, it's a toxic match made in hell. And so I feel like I can finally figure out like my part in it. 
my covering for him, you know, me staying for way longer than I should have. Um, you know, my friends and my family have absolutely just surrounded me. I'm just really lucky, you know. Um, and now I get to tell my story and all all of these stories on your podcast, all of them are so different and but they all have a lot of similarities, you know, and, you know, mine wasn't as bad as a lot of them that I've listened to, but if there's just like one person or five people or a hundred people out there that hear my story and actually realize, oh, this sounds familiar. I, I didn't think this was abuse, you know, this, wow. Now I know why I feel the way I feel, you know? constant confusion and people making you feel crazy and using you. And that's what it took for me. I mean, I'm so damn stubborn and hellbent on fixing everything that I just didn't see it. And now that I see it, you know, I'm not ashamed anymore. I got over the shame. I'm still kind of shocked, <laughs> you know, like some, some days I wake up and I'm like, holy crap, like this was my life, you know, but I, I kind of like look at it as climbing a mountain, you know, I climbed that damn mountain for years. Some days I climbed, you know, 10 steps, some days it was a thousand steps, but I climbed that mountain and it sucked and it hurt and it was dark. But then when you get to the top of the mountain and that toxic person is gone. That black cloud is gone. The, you know, despair and the lies and the bullshit is gone. And you look out at the view and you're like, oh my God, you know, this is beautiful. Like this, this is what I want. Like, this is what I need. I deserve this. Like I deserve to have a happy life. And at that point, you know, I think I got to that point a couple months ago. You know, I'm almost nine, 10 months out divorce. And I, I think I finally got to that point where I could actually see what life can be without that. And now I'm kind of like just sliding down the mountain, like smiling, you know, I'm having fun. I'm laughing again. I'm still, you know, dealing with my son and his issues, but he's having better days, you know, I see it. I see the light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. And sorry. <laughs> what I went through was so hard. Not just the 27 years with my ex, it was hard, but getting up the courage to leave was the hardest thing I've ever done. Breaking up my son's family was the hardest thing I've ever done. Getting out from under that last trauma bond that I thought was going to kill me. Um, I'm really sorry. I told myself I wasn't going to cry tonight. I guess I just, I want people to know that when you feel completely alone, you're not. When you feel like you're losing your mind, you're not. You've been conditioned to think you're crazy. And 
you just have to get through it and you will get through it and you have to take that first step and you have to do the work you have to look inward and you have to love yourself again i never took care of myself i never did self care <laughs> i didn't have time you know and now every day i take time out you know i take time out for myself i do something nice for myself um I still journal, meditate, pray. I work on my recovery. Um, I remind myself that I'm worth it. Um, I go out with friends. My relationship with my mom has become an incredible relationship because we've talked about a lot of this and why and how it happened. And it's brought us closer together. I think, because now we kind of understand our own dynamic between the two of us. So, And if you had even more words of wisdom, because you've already given us a lot, <laughs> what would they be? Trust your gut. Believe people when they tell you who they are. And, you know, you just have to remember that you're a beautiful and, you know, precious individual. And you deserve to live a happy life without abuse. Learn research. I wish I would have known the things I know now. Life would have been very different. <laughs> well, Bay, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. Being a guest, as I've said many times, is difficult to tell your story. And for you and many other people, when we're dealing with 27 years and we're trying to do a show where we're somewhere between you know an hour and 20 minutes and in two hours long to know or what I'm gonna say or which things are are the best things to mention because for you it's 27 years it's hard to figure out which stories are the things that you want to translate to other people to make pe people feel less alone, to describe all of the tactics that were used so people can have these things reinforced uh, over and over again so they understand and they can feel validated by your experience and your feelings and also enough time to really, you know, you talking here at the end has just been um, wonderful um, to hear, you know, a story is a story is a story. And, you know, we got to know you today and you're a wonderful person. And I think you just did a, a really good job of not just explaining your story and educating people, but showing everyone who you are and your resiliency and there's so many people out there that are going to gain strength from your story. People are out there and they're going to resonate with what you had to say today. And I can't thank you enough uh, for being here. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate the chance to tell it. 
Well, Bay, thank you once again for being here with us today and sharing your story. And if you want to share your story like Bay did today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have a support group. So if you need support, you can go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a support group button there. You'll find that we have a very safe social network inside there that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you and to give validation to others as well. It's a great group of people that are in our support group. They're all very supportive. And if you want to join, just go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, and press that support group button. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. There you can find articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and abuse agencies that are there to help you. And you can find that at DomesticShelters.org. It doesn't matter how big or small your town is. DomesticShelters.org has it there. And that is it for our show today. So for myself and Bay, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>